Armin and I had the pleasure and honor to interview artist and art educator Larry Butcher, Professor Emeritus of Delta College. His paintings and teaching philosophy are well known throughout the Midwest. Have a listen. Welcome to Art Ladders, The Creative Climb with Valerie Allen and Armin Mersman. This podcast is focused on interviews, features, and stories about art. It's for artists and art lovers. I'm Val. I'm the abstract artist in the group, joined by Armin, the realist. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Welcome back to Art Ladders. This is episode 55. And today we have a very special guest, Larry Butcher, and he will be talking to us about life and art and all the topics in between. He is the Professor Emeritus from Delta College and also studied at both both Cranbrook Academy of Art and also Central Michigan University. And Armin, I see you in Podville land. How are you? Well, this is very exciting for me because uh, Larry was a very important teacher of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that didn't become apparent until I was living in Chicago. And there's a gallery there called Women's Mid Gallery. Um, as the title refers, it's usually women artists that show there. But they did a show called Men Define the Feminine. And like most your shows, you enter and hope you got in. There were a couple hundred, three, four hundred people that entered and, and went down to 40 that they, that got in. I was lucky enough to get in. And at the opening, people started, aren't you from from Saginaw and this? Yeah. And then half the people there were former Larry Butcher students. I kid you Amazing. not. This is in Chicago. Yes. Out of the out of 20 people there were former Larry Butcher students. And that's when it dawned on me that I made the right decision when I started going to college because I heard a lot about Delta College and mm-hmm. it's a community college that mm-hmm. they had the best uh, art staff in, in any community college at the time in the state of Michigan, and it's right in my backyard. Mm-hmm. I also remember that, that first day, uh, you know, scared the crap out of me, actually, that first day. <laughs> you know, as a young artist, and then you, you, this man, Larry, you know, uh, was uh, kind of daunting to me at the time. <laughs> so with that as an introduction, uh <laughs> We'll start off with, hello, Larry, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, Herman. Good to see you. Good to see you, oh, now. So glad you could be here with us. And I, I have a question I'd like to lead in with here, because I uh, I came to the area after all of, uh, all of this happened. But um, when did you realize that art was going to be your journey? Well, I'll tell you, as a, as a kid... All I ever did was draw. I was raised on a farm, um, mm-hmm. oldest of uh, five children, three brothers, a uh, sister. Um, and I was uh, not a great student. In elementary school, uh, I hardly spoke. I was shy. Uh, and drawing is what occupied my time. And uh, my mother, when we cleaned out after my mother died, she had hundreds of sketches and drawings that I'd had over the years that she would hoard away. She certainly was my first muse. Uh, Dad was encouraging, but my mother was really somebody who watched over me as an artist. Uh, and I could draw anything I saw. And it was really my only voice. But in elementary school, it wasn't until the fifth grade that any teacher actually looked at my art and thought, saw it as a good thing. And when she did, Esther Duddles, bless her soul, we won contests. I did posters. We went went to Greenfield Village. I I saw my identity as an artist. There wasn't a lot of art taught in the elementary school. Mm-hmm. I remember one teacher who came in. Um, he came only in once, like an art consultant, and um, he did this mural where all of us contributed to it. 
And he would call out something he needed, and I'd raise my hand, and I'd draw a tiger, or I'd draw an elephant. And he'd put it on the board, and he gave us some praise. Uh-huh. Uh, otherwise, I think my mother thought maybe I was learning disabled. I was doing so poorly in elementary school. Uh, oh, uh, it just, yeah. it bored me. Um, so early on, I say, you know, I saw myself as an artist with no role model. There was no artist in our family. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so it was hard to say I'm going to be an artist, but believe me, it chose me. It's the best I could in the overview of all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, as my career p- progressed, uh, I went. We, I was raised in Grand Blanc, Michigan, on my mother's family farm, and then we moved when I was 12 to Byron, even smaller town, 600 people, and uh, my drawing skills became that I was the artist. Um, so even into high school, uh, my English teacher forgave my poor English writing, uh, but she was my art teacher and uh, she gave me a lot of praise and she gave me a lot of opportunities. And so the terms of the path of being an artist, other people saw it in me, but mm-hmm. it was something that I always did. I was always drawing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can relate with that. I think we grew up kind of the same way. The only difference was my dad was an artist, so I knew there was such a thing, I suppose, you know. Mm-hmm. I was never in a museum. It wasn't until um, my um, really my senior year that we went over to Michigan State and I saw a museum show. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though the Flint Institute of Arts and all of that, you know, that, that was close. That was never something that was a part of my experience. Mm-hmm. Um I was just the guy that if they put something in front of me, I could draw. Mm-hmm. And I did posters. Eventually, when I was 16, I had a friend who uh, said, you know, could you letter a truck? And I thought, God, I bet I can letter a truck. So I lettered the truck and made 15 bucks. And then pretty soon I um, got known for sign painting. I practiced diligently. I went and hung out in sign painters shops who uh, were generous enough to let me watch and ask questions. I didn't get paid for anything I did in there, but I, w- I was on a keen observer. And I actually was a sign painter from the time I was 16. That was my way to try to get off the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the way until 26. It put me through college, under, undergraduate, graduate, and postgraduate. So uh, being a sign painter and separating the commercial from the what I would call fine art or my own art uh, was something that I started wrestling with when I uh, first went to college. Um, but 16 is when I started being a sign painter. You think that the precision that you did with your shape canvases, uh, was helped you out by being a former sign painter? Actually, you know, that's a curious thing because I, uh, being raised on a farm, I, um, I was also asthmatic, um, from being a very young child. I said would have adrenaline shots when I, asthma would close down all my airways and, I wore a respirator on the farm, and so working on the farm was just a curse. Um, and when I was 16, I, as I said, I started painting signs, and I made a bargain with Dad. If I painted signs during my junior, during my junior and senior year, uh, instead of doing as much farm work, you know, um, as long as I was kind of saving towards college, that, that, that met the burden. So that was really my leverage to get off the farm. Yeah. Um, when I look back on being on the farm, I think that's how I learned to be an artist. My dad was not a great teacher, although four out of five of the kids were teachers. But he would essentially send you off to do something. Go do this. Giving you no instruction on how to do it. And you would go do it. You'd figure it out. And um, a lot of that is like making art. You don't see what it's going to be. You're in there with materials trying to figure out how to make it. Um, and you can't always rely on somebody to teach you how to do it. No. So I think about the farm and the work ethic on the farm taught me a lot. In terms of the intricacy of the shape canvases, what would predate that was when I was in undergraduate school at CMU. Um, most of the instructors were old abstract expressionist guys. And though I loved the abstract eventually, uh, it it didn't talk to me in the same way as more hands-on. 
So I had an instructor named Bert Dickerson, who was the abstract expressions painter, but he had a sculpture class. And so I was in this sculpture class and I was welding up an armature for a uh, plaster sculpture. And he walked by me and he says, uh, don't put any plaster in. And I said, okay. And, and he walked away. That was Bert's teaching style. And so I started covering the skin of it with cut up tin and stuff from junkyards and creating intricacies that uh, were with a welding torch were hands-on, three-dimensional, loved it. And they uh, they allowed me in there all day, all night, so I'd be up there all night welding in, in junkyards. And I finally did a piece called Slaves of No Special Color, which was this square tin that had this bursting form bursting out of the tin. Um, it had bars in it. Pretty elegant piece. Um, the Flint Institute of Arts bought it out of a show that I there was I was in in 1966, and that piece actually forecasted the shape canvases, where the square tin that I had this form bursting out of, because it, it didn't stay in its space, made me think of the drawings that I had that had these squares that had things bursting out. And I'd go to my instructors and say, how would I do that? And they said, I don't know. You know, go buy a door and you could cut out the door and maybe that'd be it. Well, the door cost 75 bucks and my rent was 75 bucks. So that was a no-go. And so eventually I uh, looked at those canvases uh, and I started building on additions to them. They were simple little bubbles, if you were. Hmm. Um, Didn't they come from pop? Eventually it became much more intricate. <laughs> Didn't, so, they, didn't they come from popcorn? Yeah, they were. You know, I had these books of uh, my sketchbooks where I take a bowl of popcorn, hold up, hold up one to a continuous line contour of the drawing, and then eat it. And I'd do pages of these. I wanted something really organic added into my work. Mm -hmm. And so I did some com combinations of these kind of popcorn forms, cloud like forms bursting smoke-like forms along with traditional landscapes. And I'd reduce these to simple gestures. And then I created some of my first shaped canvases when I was doing graduate work at uh, Central Michigan. Um, it was interesting when I started the shaped canvases, uh, the painters didn't want to talk to me because I looked, I busted out of the square. But okay. they said, well, this is sculpture. Of course, the sculptor didn't think it was sculpture. Uh, so I found um, Catherine Ux, who is the head of fiber at uh, Central Michigan, who is a Cranbrook graduate, and she was late in her years there. And um, she loved what I was doing. She became my mentor in terms of my first shape canvases. Um, and um, I took those first, I did five shape canvases uh, in late 69. Late fall of 69, and edited him in the Flint, Michigan show, the Flint Institute of Art show. And Wally Mitchell, who was the president of Cranbrook and uh, um, the man who is the head of uh, the Cleveland Institute of uh, Arts, had judged the show and they gave me three first prizes for these canvases. They were the first uh, time that the canvases had been anointed in terms of, of winning a prize. Mm -hmm. uh, they were also part of uh, the portfolio I put together to apply to Cranbrook. Um, so I did my undergraduate and graduate in uh, education at uh, Central Michigan and then did a year at Cranbrook Academy of Art. And my first year of canvases were 1969. Wow. Yeah. What a break. So that was no, an interesting you journey, but it really came out of the hands-on of sculpture, mm -hmm. uh, the welding tour. I had to give up sculpture because when I left Central Michigan. I bought a acetylene torch, but nobody would rent me a studio because they're afraid I'd burn the place down. Um, <laughs> which, as careless a welder as I was, uh, that <laughs> might have been true. I was an undergraduate in industrial arts at uh, Central Michigan because they had the best tools. They had all the best wood tools, saws. And it was in the same building as uh, the art department. So some of my learning of working with these other tools came out of my industrial arts minor uh, and also the welding part. And then the sculpture department had to get a, a acetylene torch and 
the rest of it, as you say, would be kind of history in terms of they were the first pieces that I ended. I remember my painting instructor, Joe DeLuca, who's still alive. Uh, he entered the uh, Flint Institute show and I'd entered my sculptures. And I saw Joe and he says, well, I saw that work that you entered down there at Flint. So at least I sent my best work. Oh, so, thanks, Joe. Well, I won a first prize in sculpture, and my other sculpture, Slaves in No Special Color, was bought for the permanent collection of the Flint Institute of Arts by the director, Stuart Harge. So, Joe <laughs> uh, sure had his nose been out of shape, maybe about that. So. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, did you know that you, did you know you were onto something different with these shape canvases? Absolutely. Well, I was. I mean, when I first saw them, I had no reference to, in art history, really anything like that. Yeah. Well, it's, I don't, for myself, it came out of my own evolution of work. Mm. Um, it was out of a need to try to figure out a way to not just cut it off at the corner, but allow that corner to move off on itself. And so they were real rudimentary additions to a square box with a canvas stretched past and then wrapped to hide the cuts of getting the canvas to accommodate this organic form. And, you know, in it, I, I didn't have any reference. Um, I would say there's a place where out of undergraduate school, your work is, tends to be derivative. I did pop art things that were large paintings that had flat surfaces and um, had letters and words in them and were painted with sign paint because that's what I had most of. I didn't because I was a sign painter. I had sign paint, so that's what I used. Uh, but they were—they certainly looked like Robert Indiana, and they looked like—they mm -hmm. looked like the pop artists. And when I did my sculpture, they looked a little like the Giacometti and Chadwick and other people that uh, you know. You could say, "Well, that's a little derivative." I think uh, near the end of my sculpture, it started having an original voice. Um, but when I started to shape canvases, I'd been doing abstract expressionist paintings and other things. And they weren't they weren't special in any way. They were pretty good. But um, when I hit these, I found the voice was strong enough where it just I just knew what to do next and what to do next. And I didn't get much support out of any of my graduate, you know, instructors. Uh, when I got in Cranbrook. One instructor said to me that um, he'd been doing these geometric things that were, uh, they were like shapes, but they were like puzzles, geometric puzzles. That was an interesting thing. Um, and then when I got in Cranbrook, I got in, accepted, and I was only, they only accepted eight, there was 25 painters, and eight new ones. Um, when I got there, the guy who was the head of Cranbrook is George Ortman of the painting department. And I didn't know his work. And it looked, it's interesting. His work had this really organic, puzzle-like quality, very much like my instructor at CMU. Mm -hmm. And uh, a little too derivative, I'd have to say. But anyway, I looked at that and I thought, well, I went to George. And I said, you know, I studied with a guy who was doing work a lot like yours. And he says, well, that guy must be a genius. I thought, no, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so my, you know, my time at Cranbrook was really allowed me to hone. I had probably six or eight shape canvases before I went to Cranbrook. The year I was at Cranbrook, um, I was able to work all day in the studio doing much more complicated shape canvases, um, which George liked the geometric part of it, but hated the organic. The head of sculpture loved them. The head of the fabric department, Gerhard Nodell, loved them. Uh, the printmaker loved my drawing. Uh, I had a lot of support at Cranbrook, mm -hmm. but not necessarily from George. George, George didn't like my organic drawing in my uh, <laughs> uh, at all. He'd come in, he'd say, take that out. And I'd say, well, I'm not going to take it out, George. Here's why I put it in. And we would argue. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where I became a better defender of my work because mm -hmm. it had an original voice. It did. It didn't look like anybody else's. Mm -hmm. You know, I would have been afraid that if I break the picture plane, will that flatten the image? 
I think that would have been my first fear if I would have created those. That's what you're wrestling with, because what I would do essentially, I was trying to create illusion space on a, a shaped perimeter. And there's only one time that I ever raised the surface um, where I had three elements organic or three elements that were raised up to six inches and the rest of the surface was two inches off the wall. Mm-hmm. And I found that that was disturbing because the three forms that I put there cast shadows on the rest of my illusion and ruined the illusion. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, to pull that off, um, it's always, it was always a balance of, can I create the illusion of movement on a surface that's already dimensional? Um, and I think that became something I, I did 159 shape canvases from 1969 through 2002. And uh, I think that was something I wrestled with all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I thought your work had more of an illusion of three dimensionality by the way you use perspective on these shapes with the organic and how that, the way you were using color was bringing it out to the viewer, kind of these flat areas. And then you also worked on raw canvas, drawing on raw canvas. Right, exactly. And so you had yeah. this mixture of, of design, pop art, and drawing that just kind of led the eye into different directions when you saw these shaped canvas. And I've seen you build these things, building with those, you know, I don't know if that took you more time than painting them, but that, my gosh, that was a lot of uh, work. Well, you know, it's curious. The um, I part of you know the how to stay alive as an artist. I was a sign painter. I was also a carpenter, and um, so a lot of the carpenter skills that I learned in my shape canvases was building my own furniture from the time I was in college. Uh, I mean, we're not talking about dovetail kind of detail we're talking about decent kind of furniture that i'd build what i call right angle kind of furniture um so i i had the carpenter skills and for me like what i was building was like a body is that the uh, inside structure of it was like a skeleton and uh there was i was using redwood or cedar five quarter one and a half when i first started and i went to five quarter later on and then quarter inch was like the muscle and then the canvas is like the skin. So it's like building a body with these things. Um, the way you wrap the, the canvas around that. Yeah, well, the, when it's um, part of it, the canvas, once I've, uh, I've built the structure, um, then the canvas, I glue the canvas down and I pull it past and cut it, cuts and darts, so that I'm gluing it to the side. The side has also been filled with wood, so the solid core. And then eventually I hide all those cuts and darts on the side with a separate piece of canvas and then staple that to the back so that I'm hiding all the cuts and darts on the side. But many times when I was done with these, even at Cranbrook, I'd finish one and George would look at it and he'd say, well, Larry, don't put anything on it. It's beautiful. I was just going to ask. <laughs> I said, God, George, okay, that's that's not exactly done yet for me. But uh, <laughs> I, I figure if it's any good, it's good along the way. Um, but that's, that's happened with the canvases that as I would reduce more, um, reduce mean I reduce the surface area that I'm going to get the illusion on and it becomes more and more sculptural. Some of them were really elegant as just white ghosts. Uh, mm-hmm. I always had a black wall in my studio and I'd hang them there and they were like white ghosts waiting to be, waiting to be worked on, uh, for me. Uh, but I would live with them for a while because they were quite, they were quite beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, but not enough, not yeah, enough. The painter fun? in me wanted to paint, uh, the drawer in me wanted to draw. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's one of these where I, uh, I guess the best compliment I had about, and I didn't hear the compliment it was told to me. I was in a BBA show that Alice Aycock, the sculptor, sculptors, uh, judged, Mm-hmm. And she did a little gallery tour and she came to my canvases and she said, these canvases are the most idiosyncratic canvases I've seen. I have no reference to anybody else that they're about. I don't know that they're about any particular system or thing. And she says, I think they're really well crafted. And I liked them and I walked away. And I thought, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, I, I wouldn't want my work at this stage to be reminded of anybody. Right. Uh, I mean, my job is to make the best or worst Larry Butchers possible. And I'm mm-hmm. quite capable of it. Uh, you know, so it's but that that kind of thing where it's not sculpture, it's not painting. Um, I used to, I reduced it for a while from seven in the 70s, right after Cranbrook, to no color other than black, raw canvas and varnish and varnished wood. So that I was really dealing with a minimalist mm-hmm. uh, statement of materials. And um, I worked on that way probably from 72 till 75. And then in 75, I did two pieces that uh, brought color back into it. Armin, when you mentioned the um, perspective use, there's a piece called Hovering Transplant, which I think Val will find out on Facebook for you, mm-hmm. um, where it looks like this aerial form at the bottom is coming right off the canvas. Edge. I know exactly the one that you're talking yep. about. That and doesn't that have a checkerboard or chessboard kind of thing, too, does it? I've, I've used those before, but that one in particular uh, is a two-point perspective mm-hmm. using the horizon line to locate the viewer. Um, and it looks like this bottom arrow comes right out at you and it creates oh, a little, little triangle where this hovering uh, form, organic form, is about to be either planted or lifted out of it. Yeah, and so, you know, when I when uh, I first started becoming aware at Delta, I wanted to go to, you know, I went to, the, I was in the Air Force, and then I went to school at Delta, and then I seen these, uh, these shaped canvases, and it almost made me give up. Glad you didn't, brother. (laughs) Well, no, I'm glad I didn't either. But it was it's 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 not so much the technique, it's more of the concept. The technique I could figure it out kinda, maybe, but the concept of this Mm -hmm. was something I've never seen, and I had no concept at that time, really. I was just I just wanted to draw shit, you know. But, you know, I, so, so I want to kind of break into how did you fall into teaching then? Is that what you always wanted to do? Or was that kind of some, well, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to teach. Well, um, we'll, we'll back it up to uh, high school. Um, again, we're talking about a class D school. There's 36 in my graduating class. And I, um, English teacher Doris Bird um, uh, was also the head of a club that I was in called Future Teachers. And we would meet and talk about being a teacher. And uh, my dad said I would join anything to get off the farm. So I was, you know, not only sports, but other clubs and all of that. But anyway, this one interested me um, because I couldn't imagine how. I didn't have any idea how an artist made a living other than a sign painter. And I thought, well, I could be a sign painter, but teaching interested me. So um, we would meet, we would talk, but, you know, talking never gets me very far. I wanted to do something. So I met the sixth grade teacher in elementary school and the fifth grade teacher. And they said they didn't have any art and they wondered, you know, would I be able to teach something? So I went to Doris and I said, could I have my study room, my study hall, and I'll go teach some art to the sixth and fifth grade teachers. I had I had no idea what I was going to do. But I thought, well, you know, I'll figure out some things that I like to do and I'll go and I'll talk about it and I'll have them do it. It's a pretty, pretty simple uh, device. And so I went in and I did a couple lessons. They loved it. We put things up on the bulletin board and I came up with some more lessons and so for my senior year, I was teaching sixth and fifth graders on my study hall art. And I found I was able to talk about how I did what I did or how to do what I do. Um, and, I, and I have to think back on those things. A lot of they didn't have any materials, so we had to make up stuff out of stuff, which works for me. Once again, kind of working with minimal materials 
people who say, I can't be an artist because I can't afford blah, blah, is bull. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got a stick, go out and draw on the stand. How bad do you want to do it? And these people were anxious to do things. So that's what I did in my junior year. And then go off to college. Uh, I'm walking into the dorm with my dad, Sloan Hall. And he wraps his arm around me and he says, your major is uh, mechanical engineering. I said, Dad, I'm going to be an artist. He says, oh, no. He says, that's a hobby. That's, the farmer was talking to me about how you're going to make a living. You know, mechanical engineering. I said, are you kidding me? And so I'm signing up for their, these courses. That's when you had to sort of hang around with computer cards and all of that in a gymnasium oh, yeah. and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, my first semester was a disaster. I got a one six and I was going to, I was going on academic pro. Um, uh, and I thought, well, are you kidding me? I used to be a good, I mean, I was, I graduated with honors from Byron. <laughs> what is this? Um, and I, I, so the old man, Christmas time, is not a very good, how are you doing in school? Well, this is when you got exams afterwards. And I said, ah, well, I'm probably not doing very good. We'll see. And so January came and I got my grades and one six. And so the old man blew his top because he had paid for the first semester, first year. And uh, I said, hey, I got to take some art classes. This is making me crazy. Uh, and uh I said, otherwise, I'm going to go join the Navy with my buddy Malum and uh, Blackburn because they were going to go join the Navy. It was 1961, 62. And um, the old man had been in the military and he says, you're not going to go join the Navy. He says, get your butt back to school. You know, I've got to take some art classes, take some art classes, blah, blah, blah. So I took some art classes and I turned it around and I got a three point the second semester and that averaged out. So I didn't end up on pro. And Got decent grades in the art classes. And so then the next most important conversation happened. The old man put his arm around my shoulder and said, Well, your sister Barb's going to Michigan State next year, and I can't afford to send both of you, so you're on your own. <laughs> and, I said, good. and I was painting signs at the time. And I said, Good. So I was on my own. And the only thing you could be is an art educator. They didn't have a BFA or MFA. So I became an art, my, my degree became art education. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, famous stories. Well, how are you doing in school? I said, Well, I'm I'm paying for it. I'm doing fine. I didn't show him my grades anymore. Right, right. <laughs> my grades were a disaster. I had 27 hours of D. I uh, <laughs> I had A's in my art and A's and A's and B's and built in my industrial ed. And mm-hmm. uh, I know I got a lot of the. In fact, w- one of the D's that I got in English. I learned, I t- saw the guy later. He became the advisor when I was in the fraternity. And Doc Hodgins is his name, beautiful guy. And he says, Larry, about that D. I said, yeah, Doc. He says, it was a D minus. Oh, <laughs> ouch. <laughs> I think a lot of us got D minuses back in the old Vietnam days because the, the instructors didn't want to send us to war. Oh. Um and so you know, I'm lucky, lucky, lucky to have gotten a degree. So. Mm-hmm. My last semester at Central, uh, went in to see a counselor first time since my freshman year. And the counselor says, you haven't seen anybody along the way? I said, no. He said, well, let me audit your stuff. And he audited it. And he says, well, he says, first of all, you're 19 hours. Or he says, you're, you've got a one nine in gen ed. And if you don't have a two-point, you can't graduate. Okay. He says, so you're going to have to take class. And he added it all up. He says, you're going to have to take 19 hours of classes, no art classes, no no industrial arts. You got to get a B in one, C in the rest. I did. Get it. Well, I've always known you to challenge anything that interests you. If you're truly interested, you're the kind of person that really looks into it, studies it. And that come the kind of motorbike you bought or kind of car you bought or when we used to play racquetball and, and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> you were very serious about everything you did. All in. Uh, you know, that's the, uh, the only way I know how to play it. And, you know, it's one of those where um, after I graduated and uh, it was, I had to go an extra semester, January 67, 
this lady came to me and said, uh, I have a job for you. And I thought, well, I'm painting signs at Ray Klein Advertising and making a decent living. And I was also, uh, I spent some night teaching at CMU. And um, so I said, well, what's the job? She says, well, I'm the art consultant for uh, the Mount Pleasant Public Schools. I have seven schools and uh, you're teaching art from K through six. I said, hmm. wow. I said, that's quite a job. Well, my draft board at the time was going to get me because wow. I graduated. And they weren't given deference for art teachers. Oh. So I went to the draft board and I said, well, I had this offer for a job at seven schools, probably 2,000 kids, 40 or 50 classrooms. Uh, would that be a deferment? And they said, that sounds like a hardship. That's a deferment. So how, how did you get, job. How did you job, get yeah. into to Delta College and how did talk a little bit about those times? Well, um, you know, the, I did three and a half years at uh, at Mount Pleasant, and uh, actually, that was a great experience. Elementary kids love you. You show up and you're like the Pied Piper. So what I did is I wrote 90 classrooms. Well, my job was not just to teach the kids. It was to teach the teachers, too, so that they could teach some of the art classes. Uh, so I wrote 90 lesson plans, K through 6. They had a booklet. They could choose what lesson they wanted. They would sign up what they wanted to do. Their job was to have the materials ready, and my job was to show up, teach the class, and uh, put up a bulletin board and go through the whole school. And I would rotate seven schools. Eventually, at the end, I had uh, student teachers. So I would go in, give the lesson, leave a student teacher, go to the next classroom. And we were like a blitz in the, in the college. In the, in the, while I was doing this art consultant job, they said they'd pay for a master's. So I started the master's. Wow. And uh, so from 67 to 70, uh, working on a master's is when I actually started doing my shape canvases. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was important to me. But I had applied to Cranbrook right out of college with my pop art things and my, my sculptures. Mm -hmm. And the guy, Willette was his name, the painting department. I hauled in all these big paintings. And the painters came out of their studio and helped me haul them in. And we set them up. And I set up my sculptures. And the guy looked them over and he says, well, are you a painter or are you a sculptor? I said, well, I thought maybe I could do a little of both. He says, get this crap out of here. And when you decide who you are, you can apply again. Oh, boy. So I loaded it back up. And they were falling oh. out. They said, well, are we going to see you next year? And I said, I don't think so. So that was, I was 22 at the time. So it wasn't until I was 26 with the Shape Canvas success that I applied to Cranbrook. Mm -hmm. And um, part of it, I also got a lottery number for the for the draft of three 300 and I knew I wasn't going to get drafted. So I applied to Cranbrook on the basis of my shape canvases and my other work. And that's how I got in Cranbrook. Um, it's a long story to get to Delta. It was my year at Cranbrook in the fall of, um, um, 1970 that I was, I had a show at, uh, I was in a show at Bay city and, uh, I was waiting around to take my work down, and uh, there was a guy across the, in the same room standing by this magnificent drawing. And I said, oh, that's a great drawing. And he said, well, I love that shaped canvas. And he said, well, he said, he said, you know, you ought to enter that shaped canvas in the Sagamore show. And I said, well, I'd like to, but it closes at five, and this thing, I can't get it out of here until five. And he said, why don't you follow me? So I grabbed my stuff, and I follow him over to the Saginaw Art Museum, and He's got keys and he opens up the place and <laughs> I thought, wow, who is he? Is he the janitor? He's got all these keys and all this. And anyway, so I leave my stuff and uh, he introduces himself to me and uh, he's Russell Thayer. He's acting director <laughs> of Saginaw Art Museum. I go back to Cranbrook and about a week later, I get this call from the Saginaw Art Museum that I had uh, won first prize, and I also won a purchase prize. And the show was judged by their new acting director, Russell Thayer. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so I got to know Russell Thayer in the fall of 70. And he, while I was at Cranbrook, said he'd like to do a show at the Saginaw Museum of the Cranbrook people. And I helped him with George put this show together. And in March, we hung the show at the, at the Saginaw Museum. And this kind of Adonis of a guy comes up to me and says, I'm Charles Breed, and I've looked everybody over here, and I've got a painting job, and I'm offering you a job at Delta College. Mm. This is March of 1970. I, I just want to point out to the It was March of 71, actually. Go ahead. These two people, Charles Breed and Russell Thayer, uh, were major players in the arts, you know, nationally. And uh, um, we did a, we did a, actually we did a, we did a podcast with Russell Thayer and Nancy mm-hmm. early on. And uh, unfortunately, Charles has passed away. But uh, I mean, those components and uh, I don't want to leave out other people, John, John, Linda and all that kind of stuff. I'm just trying to get to the people that had that language and, and you and Breed and Thayer had a lot in common with how you worked and, and how you designed things, from my opinion. Yeah, because yeah, uh, at the time, I didn't, I knew Charles's work only from the Flint Institute of Arts. He had this strange pulsing flower. And then I, I obviously, I'd met Russell for the first time with that magnificent drawing, Bones Beneath the Earth. And um, so it's one of those where, you know, meeting them was one thing. Um, I didn't immediately put together that Russell was also on the staff at Delta, but he was on a year leave to be acting director of the Saginaw Museum. Hmm. Um, so anyway, Charles offers me a job and being the smart mouth I was, I was thinking, well, geez, you know, I don't think I need a job. I'm going to Spain. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's one of those where I don't I don't know what I thought I was doing, but, uh, you know, I was like, it was March. I was still cranking hard at, at, at Cranbrook. And I felt like all kinds of opportunity are possible. You know, I don't know that I want to go teach and, you know, do you have an art department? He said, oh, yeah, we're working on some rooms, but we're building a new art, new art building and all that. And I thought, oh, interesting. So I go back to Cranbrook. I've told him no, essentially. I go back to Cranbrook and I'm, Slinging and working hard, and I'm figuring I'm working towards maybe getting one of those scholarships for the second year. Well, it turned out George gave his scholarships to two other people, and I'm living in my car oh. at the end of May because I can't even afford to live in the house I'm living in. I'm living in my van. So I called Char- Charles and I said, Charles, about that job. He <laughs> <laughs> said, Well, I, said, I opened it up to everybody. There's about 45 applicants, but I'll you know, send your application in. I thought, Okay. So I sent it in and I'm living in my van. So I go down and I paint the barns at the farm and I go out to Providence, Rhode Island, and I'm living all in my van, parking in people's driveways. Um, in July, I get this letter, uh, come for a final interview. Great. So I come and uh, I'm, it's John McCormick, it's Jim Hoffersberger, uh, uh, it's Russell Thayer, this is Charles, and uh, pretty interesting crew. And I go over and I see they've dug a hole. They're going to actually build a building, mm-hmm. not just a promise. And, but that was great. And uh, so I looked around. And I saw this remarkable-looking woman walk down the hallway, and I thought, she must be one of the other candidates. And that other candidate was Hope Palmer, who's a oh, great yeah. art historian, mm-hmm. uh, great lady. And I looked at it and I looked at these four guys I'm interviewing with, and I said, well, I'm probably not going to get this job. But uh, anyway, at the end of the day, I ended up in Carline's office. Carline was the original president, one of the original presidents of Delta College, uh, an interesting character. And uh, he looked over uh, my, <clears throat> my grades, and he said, my, 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 what an array of grades you have. Uh, well, Charles says you're good, so you got the job. Oh, and that's how I got the job. <laughs> and we, we worked out of these two rooms out of our three rooms in the L wing. 
Uh, well, they built a new building and we moved in a new building in 72. And I was there 39 years. 39 years. Uh, well, you, you certainly affected uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know. Um, you know, I've been teaching for a long time myself now. And, uh, you know, I think I built my own way on the way you taught. Because what you taught was about concept. Concept to you meant more to you, I think, than technical prowess. Well, you know, part of, um, remember one of your prepared questions, the philosophy of teaching mm-hmm. is that, uh, and I don't, I've always said I wanted, uh, I wanted to be taught, I want to teach the way I, wa- I wish I was taught. Um, and, uh, and I don't, it doesn't belittle the teachers that I've had. Each of them are unique in their own way. But, you know, I'll give you, for instance, my first year teaching painting at, Del- at Delta, my painting class had 12 people in it. By the end of the semester, I only had three. Those three, I sat down and I critiqued them. And I said, I'm going to give you all A's, all three of you for surviving. But really, only one of you is worth an A. And Anyway, they left. And then Charles took me aside and he says, Larry, where are you? I thought, well, maybe this is some kind of Zen question. Where are you? Uh, Well, I'm right here. I'm right here right now. He says, that's right. You are at Delta College. You are not at Cranbrook Academy of Art. These are people who are not graduate students. They are students who are coming with varying degrees of abilities and backgrounds And you need to teach each one of them because they all paid the same amount of money to come and be in your class. That was the huge whack in the face of who I needed to be as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what really changed for me was uh, know your students. So I would do lessons that they would reveal themselves in, and then I would use them to pry more out of them. Uh And over the years of teaching, I decided the best I could say I am is that I'm a gatekeeper, a gateway to their new artistic life. Mm -hmm. And I can give them every tool possible for them to know themselves so they can walk through that gate and be be themselves. And that if I do the fundamentals right, it's a community college, if I lay the foundation right, they can build anything they want. And so... With that in mind, that's how I taught. And I knew that they were out of there with as many, depending on their own abilities. But if they would do the lessons and involve themselves in that community that would happen with my, my classes, because that mattered, that I could build a community where they knew each other, because they would critique each other, because they would share materials with each other, or they would all be comrades in a common struggle of a tough lesson. Um, but that community would make them strong enough that they could they could do what they needed to do, even if they never took any more classes. And then the other thing with a community college is I would have in a classroom an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, oldest student was 80. Mm-hmm. And I almost blew it with her asking this kind of benign question, because she's 80. Uh well, what were you doing a year ago? She says, oh, I was in Micronesia with the Peace Corps. She says, and I was the only white woman. Hmm? I mean, it's like, it's nothing for granted. They don't come empty to you. That's they true. come quite full. You may tap them, you know, fill them up a little bit more or rearrange how they see themselves. But um, for me, it was a great experience. Essentially, I had... I had 80 new people every year. Get to know. If I was lucky, I might have them for four semesters. If I never saw them again at the end of 15 weeks, they would be changed. And the most simple thing that we do is that they will be more aware of everything around them. Attentive. Exactly. They'll see more. Well, you, you finally told me I can't take classes from you anymore. I did. We you had seven. <laughs> that was <laughs> four and the three independent studies. Well, I thought we became predictable. And if I if I can't surprise a student by something I'm going to say to them, 
Uh-huh. Uh, then they probably need to move on. <laughs> yeah. And you have reached that too with students who are repetitively taking the same. Oh, I think yeah. you can only I think yeah. you can only be nourished so much from one source. I, I agree hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I I really love that you and you brought it up because one of my questions was how you would see attitudes change. But the way that you cultivate a community in your class and they help each other. That is one of my key points when I teach. That is so helpful. And the multi-generational aspect is a definite plus. Huge. Huge. The last classes that I taught at Delta in 2010, I had one class that were all 18 and Mm 19-year-olds. And that class, I couldn't reach to the one who had more experience, life experience, and why that drawing they did had a little bit more in it than the one who's 18 hasn't lived as long. It wasn't there. And it was Mm -hmm. a decent class. And when I was done, I thought, wow, that was a hard class to teach. And I read the student evaluations and they they seemed to enjoy it. And I thought, well, Mm -hmm. it's one of those, I'm glad it was good for you, but this was tough for me. Uh Uh I, I didn't realize how much I rely on those experience bases, an 18 year old come in and say, well, you know, I didn't get my work done. I said, why don't you talk to her? Mm-hmm. She has three kids. Yes. She's a single mom. She works a job and she right. got her painting done. Why don't you talk to her? Mm-hmm. Time he, loved, he knew. He knew. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfect to have that, just that experience. There's somebody mm-hmm. sitting in a class with somebody of the age of their mother and the age of the grandmother. <laughs> yeah, and you're not going to pull wool in the same way. You're not going to give some BS answer. You might try, but you get mm-hmm. called on. Right. Community will call you on it. Yeah, I don't have to community. call you on it. <laughs> so true. Yeah. And the other thing are... is that um, all of us at Delta were practicing artists. We all exhibited. Mm-hmm. We all right. were practitioners of our of our discipline. So you know, I there's times. And sometimes I think I probably shouldn't do it, but I'd be, it'd be Monday and I go to my painting class and I'd call them all over to the rack. And I say, why is your painting in this rack? Why didn't that painting go home with you? I was in my studio painting. Why don't you care enough about this? Did you leave it in the rack for the whole weekend? And you don't work on it. And that's it. I don't walk away and we can continue to what else we're doing, but that they knew that I wasn't just teaching a subject. This this is the food of my life. Right, right. You want to be nourished too. Yeah. Show up. Show up. (laughs) Have you ever thought of, and I'm thinking of those 90 lesson plans you created back at Mount Pleasant and all of the lesson plans that you created uh, through your teaching career of writing a book? Oh no! <laughs> oh, I think it would you know, be awesome. Very interesting. You know, um, I think I think about first of all uh, your question. I appreciate you asking it, mm-hmm. but mostly what I would do is I would create a skeleton. Mm-hmm. If that's all you had without the experience, there, there wouldn't all there would be is bone. <laughs> <laughs> there's no meat. There's no skin. There's no color. There's. Um, and I did that intentionally when mm-hmm. assessment was the big, let's assess everything and, you know, we'll have outcomes and objectives and blah, 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 blah. And I, uh, it was big at Delta and I was on the, I was head of the curriculum committee um, that was running all the curriculum. So assessment was a big tool. And so I, I wrote my assessment and I kept it very lean. And I tell all of them, keep it lean. Keep it lean. Less is Don't more. make promises <laughs> beyond what you can make. What are the mm-hmm. essences here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a VP who was giving me a lot of crap about my own assessment tools come to a painting critique. And at the end of the painting critique, she says, I don't know what I just saw. She says, there was 14 different versions of your assignment. Mm-hmm. And I said, Ann? Well, she says, how do you assess that? What is your... I'm in bed and going on and on with it. And I said, well, first of all, there's 14 different people. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they all be different assignments? I, I geared the assignment in such a way where there has to be no duplicates. If there's a duplicate, there's something wrong. And yet it, it is in how they process it individually 
mm-hmm. and did the critical thinking individually to solve that particular piece. And yet we were all able to talk about it. So there's a common denominator going on in here. She just shook her head and walked out of the room. And I thought, good. Hmm. Don't try to put us in a box. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not reminded on another way back to when I was teaching in an elementary school, this lady who didn't like me. Uh, anyway, I, I watched her through the doorway working on Santa Clauses in front of her, all of her students, had all the same stuff out. And she went around and arranged all of them, and they all glued them down. And then she put them all up on the board. And then she said, Larry, I have an assignment I want you to look at. And I looked at it. And I said, Ann, well, what do you think? I said, why didn't you just put one up? You did all the rest of them. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I agree 100%. Oh. And that's one of the things there, I took away and from And there are, uh, frankly, there are teachers at a higher level than elementary school doing the same thing. Oh, they made a lesson that's so tight that all you can get is the same. Yeah. How can, how can all these same people come out with it? So I make sure the lessons have something to do with them. Mm-hmm. They choose the subject. They own the subject. They choose the subject because it's empowered them in some way. So they want to draw it because it's something they chose, not something I chose, mm-hmm. not my junk that I say, you draw this. And so those kinds of things let them buy in. Yeah. I remember that popping up in your class one time. Voice. We got to start ending this. But I remember you, the assignment was fly, something with fly, some words. And everybody was doing fly. I did a fly. And this one guy, I did a zipper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you yeah. looked at his work and you said, that's the best piece right yeah. there. <laughs> that because is the, so he wasn't a great painter by any means, but it was that you opened my eyes and say, yes, think differently. Think about mm-hmm. those things. And exactly. you were great at that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, it, frankly, I'd walk in the classroom with no expectations other than I'd have enough of an assignment that I thought this will stir him up yeah. and let's see what happens. I had no idea whether, it'll, frankly, whether it will rise or, or, or fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife, Shannon, was in, my, in one of my early classes back in the 90s. And you know, one of the things we do is pointillism. Well, we've been married for 20-some years now, 21 years. And uh, one of her standard jokes is, you don't do pointillism. I said, I've never done pointillism. I taught lots of things that I have never done. Right. Um, I don't need to be a master of it. I need to understand what the materials are and all of that. Mm-hmm. You can't be a master of everything anyway. Then no, you're no. a master of nothing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, wow. take the, you take a certain kind of discipline, know enough to, to guide them, and then I would be amazed by what they would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would take photos of the best of that, and I would use that to motivate the next class. I'd say, people in the same class as you did mm-hmm. this. Yeah. You'll be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, my last... My last time at Delta, when I knew I was going to retire, I set my retirement in in February of 2010. And um, as I taught the lessons, I always used slides of the previous students' work. I would take all those slides from that work. I'd look at them, remember the name of the students, mm-hmm. hundreds of students, and I threw the slide away. I threw every one of them away, back to your write a book, Val. Because I knew all of that was done. And I never wanted to use those slides if I ever taught again. But I mm-hmm. chose not to teach after 42 and a half years of teaching. Wow. Because I feel like that part is done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave it all I could. Uh, I value all of that. But um, don't regret that I don't teach anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I think and I'm glad you two are. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think your, I, your legacy though goes on yeah. many, many people, not only in our community, they've taken that across the country, across the world. Um, uh, I can't sit here and, and and really personally tell you what you mean to me, but uh, you know, we've talked and uh, you're an amazing artist, number one, an amazing teacher, number two and a great friend so uh but i want people to listen to this show for what you do and maybe we can find some of the pieces you do yeah well, well during will. my my i spent my spring two weeks in the hospital with double pneumonia and so when i try to 
getting my grounding back when I started posting just a bunch of the pieces that really interested me mm-hmm. with some narratives about what I did on my uh, Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked Val, find something that you like, go mm-hmm. ahead and post what you like. You'll see some of these names that I've said about these pieces. Uh, uh, interesting. I, I had cancer in 2002 and I tell you, he was the nastiest teacher of anything mm. in my life. And it uh, reordered a lot of things. Uh, unfortunately, some of the materials I used for my shape canvases is part of the source of my cancer. And uh, so the shape canvases were done in 2002, August. And since then, I've worked only on paper, going back to my first love. You, which you've is made great drawings. You know, we kind of skip over that because of the uh, oh, the hugeness of the shape canvases. But you're a hell of a draughtsman. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, well, that was my first love is what I was good at. Yeah. I draw with these large kindergarten pencils. I buy them by the ring or by the dozens. And I liked how they felt in my hand when I had a little hand. I still like how they feel in my big hand. Yeah. Um, and the drawings for me uh, are the most immediate. They, you don't, you can't, you can't hide in the drawing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it is bare bones. It's not. Darman and I have talked. They don't value it as much. Although I wish you do your shape canvases, and I look at my shape canvases and I think, yeah, I, I like them. If I wanted to do one, I'd do one. But I really feel that 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 chapter closed, mm-hmm. and they are certainly some of my most powerful work. And I'm glad they're mine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you go back to that kind of point of when you look at work. I look at lots of work. When I walk into a gallery show that I'm in, a jury show, and I see my piece, I think, glad that's mine. And yeah. I, uh, and that's, for me, at this point in my life, that's the best That's the best to get. I finish a drawing, I look at it, look forward to the next piece. So, And yeah. you know, you for me. me about a philosophy, I'm going to just tell you one philosophy, and it comes from Mary, Mary Oliver, who was a great poet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yes. And essentially it's um it's a way of looking at I think also the call to being a teacher. Um and it, ha- it has to do with be attentive, be be astonished, mm-hmm. and tell somebody about it. And tell yeah. somebody. And and that brings me back that I am so happy that we did this podcast because uh I've learned so much in this. 40 or so minutes that we've been talking and, you know, I could say to you, Hey, Larry, name the top three things you would tell an artist, but here's what I'm going to say. Here are my three takeaways as an art educator from listening to you. And one, use what you have, the materials. You covered that in the beginning of the talk. Love that. Number two, keep it lean you know, as an educator, sometimes I feel like I have to have a step-by-step. I was just lamenting about it today saying, I need to open up my lessons to allow more decision-making by this, by the artists, by the students. You know, this is art. This is, they should be inventing their own process. Mm -hmm. And number three, (laughs) one of my number three is to use the Mary Oliver example. I, I love her work. Be attentive, be astonished. Great takeaways for me, Larry. And I know they will be for the listeners. Well, I also found that my students spoke well of the classes without them realizing that much of what they were talking about was themselves. Oh, how much they learned about themselves and doing it. And then later in life, I see them. You always hope you remember their name and they'll come up and they'll say, oh, yeah. I don't paint anymore, but I, and invariably they're doing something that has to do with visual literacy. Mm-hmm. They're doing video. They're doing, they're, they're doing things that had to do with the elements of the class that they were in. You know, the, looking at how do you know, one point perspective, where am I? What's the horizon line? How do I control the viewer? Uh-huh. Is it really true? All these lines are converging to where I'm looking. Simple things like that. Just say, I don't walk down a hallway without knowing exactly where I am. Mm-hmm. I say, yeah, no. It's that, that whole thing that they change somewhat and mm-hmm. they'll use it the rest of their lives. Of course, we didn't raise all artists. Mm-hmm. We don't need that many artists. <laughs> it's, it's hard work. It's, 
It's thankless work. If we could break even any one year, we think we're ahead of the game. But that's not why we play the game. Exactly. Not at all. Well, thank you. Thank you, Larry. This is nice jamming with you three. You know, three of us here, a little triad. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Val. Thank you, Garmin. Thank you to our sponsor, Golden Apple Residency and Studio, located in Down East, Maine. This residency program is taking applications for 2025. I attended this year and brought back a body of work for current exhibitions. I highly recommend this experience. Reach out to Shelly Stevens, artist and director of the residency. Her email is snstevens at goldenapplestudio.com. That's S-N-S-T-E-V-E-N-S at goldenapplestudio.com or visit their website at goldenapplestudio.com. Thank you for listening. You can find our past and future episodes at anchor.fm, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook page, Art Ladders, The Creative Climb with Valerie Allen and Armin Mersman. Special thanks to our producer, Taylor Kramer of Cold Shower Media. And check out our websites, ValerieAllenArt.com, ArminMersman.com. Stay creative, stay curious, and we'll see you next time.